Maya Angelou once said, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Our interactions with healthcare workers can make or break the trust that we have with them and our willingness to seek help when we need it. Affirming healthcare is very much needed for the 2S LGBTQ plus youth around the world who are often turned away, belittled, or harmed. What is one supposed to do when the people who are tasked to help them instead uphold the oppression that harms them? Hello and welcome to your favorite hour of the week with the three chaotic queers. Bienvenue tout le monde. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Three Chaotic Queers, a bi-weekly podcast series where the three of us youngsters can openly discuss what it means to be queer in today's society and why we're ready to burn this capitalistic shit show to the ground. Welcome back to our second episode, everyone. Um, just to remind you who we are, Um, I am Nicole. I am one of the three chaotic queers. Uh, My pronouns are she, her, and they, them. And I am a chaotic queer scientist and creative. And today I'm joining on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Hello, hello. My name is Rabia and my pronouns are she, they. I am a chaotic artist and activist that works in gender sexual violence, peer support, and advocacy. I am so excited to be back for another episode with you chaotic goddesses. I am currently situated on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people. This territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties and is within the land protected by the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Agreement, which was between the Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy and the Haudenosaunee Confederacies. This agreement extends to everyone that has arrived and will arrive on this land. Thank you. And I'm Sydney. My pronouns are they, them, and she, her, but you got to use both. I'm an eclectic and chaotic neuroqueer that specializes in low barrier health equity programming for Ontario youth. And I'm once again joining in from the original lands of the displaced Huron-Wendat people adjacent to the Chippewa of Lake Simcoe. Yeah, so welcome back, everyone. Today we have a very special episode and a very special fourth chaotic queer um, to present to you all. Yeah, so we are joined by Wisdom to Action's Executive Director, Faye Johnston, to talk about 2S LGBTQI plus healthcare inequities and to get the lowdown on the Trans Health Ontario campaign, which is their ongoing bipartisan political campaign with Rainbow Health Ontario, which wants to bring legislative changes to our standards of healthcare. And just before we introduce you to our very special guest, I definitely want to give some context behind the quote that we provided in the beginning. So the experiences of queer youth in healthcare are definitely riddled with microaggressions, but what are microaggressions? So the term microaggression was coined by Harvard professor Chester M. Pierce to describe the insults and slights he had witnessed against Black people. According to Dr. Daryl Wingsu, microaggressions are everyday insults, verbal, behavioral, or envi- environmental indignities and demeaning messages, whether intentional or unintentional. When an individual experiences microaggressions, over and over and over again, they begin to take an immense toll on the person's mental health and overall well-being. 
This is often the case for many queer people. And so once I was doing my digging in research, I found this amazing study by Dr. Kimber Shelton, who identified seven themes of microaggressions that queer youth experience in psychotherapy. They are, one, assumption that sexual orientation is the cause for all presenting issues, two, avoidance and minimizing of sexual orientation, three, um, the attempts to over-identify with queer clients, four, making stereotypical assumptions about queer clients, five, assumed superiority of heterosexuality, six, assumption that queer individuals need psychotherapeutic treatment, and seven, therapists have the duty to warn queer clients about the perils of identifying with a non-exclusively heterosexual orientation. And so these themes were identified through Dr. Sheldon's study with 16 queer um, psychotherapy clients, but even though it was focusing on psychotherapy, these different microaggressions are definitely a bit universal, I guess I could say, um, and definitely reflect the experiences that queer people have in other facets of healthcare. I just want to speak to, um, before I move on, speak to uh, Rabia, the seven themes that you just mentioned, every single one that you said I've related to, and I'm sure so many people have related to that. And although the study was only done with 16 people, um, these are so, so, so common, even with, um, I guess, queer trained um psychotherapists and and count other types of counselors in general which is very unfortunate um so of course just knowing that there's so much room to do better um in uh, healthcare. yeah so as queer people we've all experienced or know someone who's unfortunately experienced one of these microaggressions we're all patients we're all um people who have well we always know someone or are people who have experienced the healthcare system. Um, these things shouldn't be normal or expected uh, with going into a healthcare setting, unfortunately. Rather, we should feel like we're getting safe and equal treatment. Um, that's why we're extremely excited to have Faye on the podcast to talk about their experience working in queer and trans health advocacy spaces. And with all of that said, Faye, would you like to formally introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, thank you, Sydney. Uh, so hello, my name is Faye Johnstone. I use she and they pronouns, and I'm joining today from unceded, unsurrendered Algonquin Anishinaabe territory, or what is colonially known as Ottawa. Um, I am the executive director of Wisdom to Action, a 2SLGTQ-owned and operated consulting firm and social enterprise, and I like to describe us as like a small but feisty group of gays who try to have a bigger impact than you would imagine. Um, and uh, my background is very much in 2SLGQ community spaces and uh, political spaces as well. So I, I am uh, a not a social worker by training, but I went to my undergrad and my master's in social work at Carleton. Um, and I have a background in like sex education and 2SLGQ nonprofits and mental health and too many other small little bits of interesting and exciting things. Um, but right now I spend most of my time uh, pushing queer and trans issues and queer and trans inclusion um, in workplaces, community organizations, and of course with our provincial, federal, and municipal governments. And I am very happy to be here with all of y'all today. 
Wow, Faye, it sounds like you have your hands in so many different things, making you the most chaotic queer out here, um, which is wonderful. And I'm sure yours and your community's uh, work has had and will continue to have impact in our communities. And I'm that's why we're super excited to talk to you. Um, so our first question, um, so you mentioned that you are the executive director of Wisdom to Action. Could you please tell us a bit about Wisdom to Action and your work there and why you initially got involved in the organization? Yeah, for sure. So Wisdom to Action, as I mentioned, is a 2SLGTQ uh, owned and operated social enterprise and consulting firm. Uh, we came out of the youth serving sector. So our roots really are helping organizations better engage and support young folks and better use evidence in their practice. So bringing research um, and helping them put it into action, i.e. putting wisdom into action. Um, nowadays, most of our work spans um, three topic areas. So I would say uh, 2SLGBTQ issues, rights, and inclusion is a big bucket. Um, and that includes working with 2SLGBTQ community organizations, advocating on our issues, educating on our issues. Um, and then we also work quite a bit in mental health. So helping explore better ways of providing young folks and all folks with access to mental health services, exploring innovation and looking into virtual mental health or uh, developing better resources for young folks who may be struggling during the absolute nightmare that is our world right now. Um, and then the third one is, is often gender-based violence. Um, and so tackling uh, sexism and misogyny in this world, helping organizations better support and include trans folks and two folks in that work, uh, but also just trying to push back against all of the shitty things that cishet folks and men writ large will enact on our people and our communities. Um, and then like our ethos really is we try to help nonprofit organizations, governments, and everybody do what they do better. So we help with strategic planning, with um, community engagement, organizational development. We are trying to help this whole sector of folks doing the best that they can uh, to just keep scaling up and dreaming of a better tomorrow, a better future, and safer communities for all kinds of folks. And the other part of your question that I almost didn't answer is how did I become involved with Wisdom to Action? And this is one of my favorite stories, and my co-owner hates when I share it. Um, about, I think, four years ago, I was invited to uh, give a talk at the International Association for Youth Mental Health Conference in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, it was absolutely terrifying. I had never been in front of an audience that large. I had come out as trans like six months before, so I had to awkwardly get them to like update my name in the promo. It was really funny and it was cute and they were great. Um, and I, I gave this big talk in front of like psychiatrists and like folks who run national organizations. Like it was 600 plus people and I was terrified because I don't use, I didn't do that at that point. And I was a baby trans and I was like new to all of the things. I think my hair was colorful. You could see like different old dye in it. Um, and I gave my talk and then I went out for some fresh air right after. And this human comes like rushing out after me and is like, hey, you, we should work together. And I'm like, who the hell are you? You know, and I forgot that we had been like in a cab together and she was also from Canada and she was like, things were cool and chill. Um, and I was like, okay, there's just this like random human and I am tired and anxious and I just give a talk and I don't know if I'm conscious right now. Um, and then 
this wonderful human emailed me a few months later and there was a contract and an opportunity to do some work on GBV and career youth. And I was like, yes, I want in. And it just like scaled and grew and became a beautiful thing from there. She hates it when I say that, tell that story though, just so y'all know. And it's great. <laughs> she still lets me say it. Why does she hate the story? Uh, because the awkward part I kind of left out was that in the cab ride over, there was this other person who looked very similar to her. No, I'm going to retract that. She didn't look very similar. I mixed her up with a, another person when I probably shouldn't have. And I was, I, I was, it was just like, oh, I'm so sorry. And that is why she doesn't like that story. It happens to the best of us. And honestly, that is such a meet cute story. Like I want to meet my coworkers in a cute way, not just like my potential future partner. Um, and yeah, I think that is great. And I really would love to hear more about your Dublin uh, speech one day. But I think what you're getting at kind of leads us to our next question, which is what types of movements and or policies do you hope to see emerge or grow in Ontario over the next five years? If you need to, you can extend that to 10 years, but like five years if you're really ambitious. I think there in the world of like 2SLGQ advocacy, there is a lot that we still need. Like I would love to see a provincial queer and trans advocacy organization. Um, our issues are, we spend a lot of time focusing on the federal government, and we should, uh, but lots of the priorities in our communities are actually provincial jurisdictions. And so I would love to see more focus on that, on what a queer and trans agenda looks like here in Ontario. And yes, my team has big plans for what the next election in Ontario is going to look like for our communities. Um, but I think we need that connection and that provincial organization so that we can advance these issues in a better and bolder way. Um, I'm also excited for, I think all of our movements are, are learning as we go. I think we are bracing ourselves for both like a very icky pushback from far right white supremacist populists, um, but at the same time, our movements are learning about intersectionality in a way they never have before. Um, we are embracing new tactics, we're building bridges and coalitions in a way that we, again, we've never done this before. I think we aren't in, um, we're in a gen generation that's different from the ones that organized before us. Um, young folks, even like, I, I, I say young folks, y'all are slightly younger than I am, but like people are growing up in schools where they learned about social justice, where they come in and they're taught, especially the younger folks, that maybe being racist and homophobic and sexist and transphobic isn't a good thing. Those folks are going to spark movements that I will probably not fully understand, but that I am so deeply excited for, and that's what's going to happen in the next five to ten years. I want to feel outdated. That is something I am very okay with. I love that so much, and I just have to say your energy when you speak is just fantastic, and it makes me so inspired and like so motivated to actually create change. Um, I just want to touch on something that you mentioned in the beginning when you um, discussed how we're coming to see a lot more of the issues and priorities within the queer community. And that kind of relates to our next question, which is, how do you think the COVID-19 pandemic has compounded healthcare issues and these issues and priorities that you've mentioned for the um, 2S LGBTQ plus youth? Yeah, I think that is a huge question. I think we, we've seen some evidence out of researchers in Toronto that has explored uh, particularly how this impact is, uh, this pandemic has impacted street-involved queer and trans young folks 
in terms of trust, in terms of access to services, in terms of access to housing and healthcare. And so I think there is a huge impact right there on some of the most vulnerable folks in our communities. Uh, we already had a career homelessness problem. It has been made worse by this pandemic because folks who were in crisis did not have the supports that they need. And queer and trans young folks who may have come into themselves in the past two years, well, what happens to them if they're not in safe homes? What happens to them during COVID? And as we move on from COVID, I am terrified for the queer and trans kids who are gonna come out tomorrow or in six months and who may be ousted from their homes. Uh, but I'm more terrified for the kid who came out in an unsafe home and didn't have the option to leave or didn't know that they could leave. So I think there's like huge social issues that we've like reinforced and ickiness that has come up about in COVID that is even worse in its own way than before. But on the healthcare side, um, many of my friends have had surgeries canceled. Uh, many of my friends have had access to hormones delayed. People have had two-year wait lists that have become four-year wait lists. Um, people have had to go off of hormones because their pharmacies were not stocking their hormones. That is medically not a good thing to force people to do. You don't go off your meds uh, because you are on a regiment and a routine that is good for you, that is aligned with that medical best practice. And so I think that has had a huge impact. Uh, but like our communities were not doing well before this pandemic happened. Like if we think about mental health, like we were already in crisis because homophobia, biphobia, transphobia does that in this world. And so you add on like a pandemic and folks are going to be having a hard time. We did not come into COVID equal. We came into COVID already dealing with a world that wasn't good to us. You add on decreased access to services. You add on stress in a hyper-politicized space, you add on a pandemic and life's gonna be a lot. So we have so much to do as we come out of hopefully this pandemic. Oh my goodness. Yeah, you're you're so right in that, um, yeah, we come into this pandemic already unequal and we will leave it that way. Um, along with, I think even more folks, um, for a lot of people, I think the pandemic has been um, a spot where they've been able to kind of reflect on their identities due to not really being out in the world and being trapped and isolated, um, which, you know, can be a positive thing, but can be, again, another isolating thing. And I also worry for um, queer folks coming out of this and would love to find a way to provide those resources for them coming out. But yeah, there's just there's just so much work to do. Um, I would also love to link this to the HIV and AIDS uh, epidemic. Uh, back in the day that was, you know, not really taken seriously by the local and federal government or anyone for that matter, um, until, you know, public outcries kind of happened um, from folks down to their communities, um, you know, th the only reason that the government responded was due to public protest and outcry of, um, we hear a lot about the US and I think not a lot about Canada, uh, but there was equally a lot of, um, you know, groundwork that was built within those communities here in our country. Um, and I, I have a bit of history right in front of me. So I think I'd love to share how, I think like um, we came, or I, I say we, but I wasn't alive back then. Um, 
how how the past queers came out of uh, the epidemic and how that changed the healthcare system. I think that's extremely powerful. Um, so back in the 1990s, uh, 10 years after the epidemic begun, um, it was Mulroney, that was our prime minister back then. And he uh, created the first HIV strategy in 1990. Um, and he carved out uh, a federal role to create a program based on research data to prevent the spread, care, treatment, and support, support programs uh, for those with disease, to um, increase funding for community health policies and systemic treatment access activities, um, and also support non-governmental organizations and fundings. Um, and this was reviewed in 1998, and um, an in-depth consultation was added uh, for communities of people with HIV. So it was updated to include uh, more of the upcoming trends and specifically showed that people who were, you know, amongst intravenous drug users and indigenous populations were the most vulnerable and were getting HIV and AIDS um, at a higher rate than everyone else. Yeah, so the quote that um, communities used I think is very powerful. They said nothing about us without us. So they told the government that they wanted equal access to um, HIV and AIDS drugs and they wanted um, proper healthcare for themselves because it involved them and it involved our community initially. Um, obviously it wasn't only gay men who had HIV and AIDS, which, was, which is what people thought for a long time. Um, and people afraid of, of, of gay men, um, unfortunately, but it's not just a gay disease. Everyone can get HIV AIDS and that wasn't, um, you know, I guess general public knowledge until later on. So I think nothing about us without us is very powerful. Regardless of people where they live and their ability to pay, they deserve the medications that they need for um, their treatments. So it's always in the hands of, it's always in the power of the people to, um, I guess, find their way out of a health crisis, which is unfortunate, but we as people do have a lot of power. Um, us as queer people have a lot of power and it is proven in history that we have been able to do that. So I do have hope for the COVID-19 pandemic, despite us having a lot of struggles. And also like we we know like queer and trans folks were more likely to want to get vaccinated, right? Like we actually like as a community, we are coming out for ourselves and for each other. We did that during the AIDS crisis. We are doing that today. And so very much you are seeing, yeah, our communities care for one another. And so that even further demonstrates that it's like, it's not a, like the health disparities that we experience, they aren't on us, they are on our systems and our governments. It is because we are more likely to try to care for ourselves, and yet we still have the worst outcomes. That shows it's not our problem, it's this government's problem. Yeah, and Faye and Nicole, I really like what you folks are both saying, and the whole nothing about us without us um, actually comes from a disability movement in the early 90s in England as well. Um, and I think that's really also important to bring into this when we're talking about HIV and AIDS, as well as COVID and long-term COVID. 
um, we are going to see that people have long-term impacts from having COVID. People who didn't even get the chance to test themselves are having long-term impacts. And it's very much something that when we're talking about health, we always have to look at it from a disability justice approach, I think. And that is really where the nothing without us about us without us um, comes in. And it's so great that that was adopted by folks. And yeah, I think one thing also I wanna expand on what Faye said is that queer and trans and two-spirit indigenous agender plus folks, um, we are all generally not going to the healthcare providers that um, everybody else is traditionally going to. We are very much going to see nurse practitioners or doulas and birth workers and people who care for our well-being in just the community social service environment. So you do see a lot of people going into drop-in health equity centers, but unfortunate impact of COVID is that these have all been shifting their availability so frequently that almost nobody can keep up with what is available, where it's available, when and to what extent. Um, and even people who are paid to do it or who volunteer to do it um, to track community-based services and help people navigate those are having a really, really hard time. And really also when it comes back to sexual health education, um, before we move on, I just want to say that this has really messed up some of the younger youth sexual and reproductive wellness education. Um, obviously, queer and trans youth have been leading their own sex ed for years, but it's kind of gotten also compacted by the fact that there is a bunch of very sex negative legislation now, like SESTA-FOSTA, which is American, but it impacts us. It censors out internet search results so that you can't always find the queer inclusive and evidence-based information that you're looking for unless you know exactly where to look for it or you have to first filter through these disturbing think pieces from cis heterosexual men um, that have are just kind of sad that they can't have sex um, but yeah and that's how we get these wonderful community compiled master docs and databases and resources they're still hard to keep up with, but yeah, um, I think we should address the internet censorship because it's not helping the youth. Yeah, I guess growing up and um, trying to look around for resources online, I relate to Sydney in that I stumbled across a lot of community-made um, like master docs and information that way. Um, Rabia, I can see you laughing and I think it's because you're thinking about the, the lesbian master doc, <laughs> the infamous one that we've all laughed at. I'm also thinking about Yahoo Answers and the fact that like 10 year old me was searching, am I pregnant? Cause I didn't get my period. <laughs> and I was like, so like confused. And like, I just completely blame our education system and literally everyone else that's involved and connected to it um but please continue Nicole no no um yeah and I I guess like reflecting on my own sex health ed education at, at school a lot of the teachers are just uncomfortable with with queer health um so we'd get like a few sentences of like there's also 
gay stuff, but it just literally ends there. And it's like, okay. Oh, just so you know, there's gay stuff. Also put this condom on this banana, which also don't know how useful that is for folks. I don't know. Like, like it doesn't touch on pleasure or like good things. Like, so, okay, I'm showing my like sex educator hat in this, but like I used to sell people vibrators and dildos for a living and I loved it. And there was nothing as powerful genuinely as being the person whose job is to help people come into and move through our myriad relationships to sex. Like be it shame, be it stigma, be it hurt, be it pleasure, be it joy and connection. Like there is so much, like our, our sex ed curriculum doesn't talk about that. It doesn't talk about the full spectrum of that. Sex is created to be both like a thing you have to shove under the rug and also something that's so stale that you don't think anybody in the room has ever had it. And I'm like, everybody is always like, we are sexual beings and equipping young people with the knowledge and tools to embrace the full spectrum of sexuality is so magical because I don't want to have to keep dealing with them when they're 50. They come into the sex shop and they don't know how to manage. And it's better for these folks to like not be worried because everyone should be able to find the vibrator that works for them. Everyone should be able to ask questions about their sex and sexuality in a supportive, affirming environment. Couldn't have said it better. I want to say really quickly that I was kind of lucky that I did grow up in an environment that had that um, because I grew up very um, in a very close proximity to sex workers. So I got a lot of that firsthand knowledge by the time I was like nine and we started sex ed in my school. Um, my school board was semi-good for sex ed. Um, we, I was like already answering all the questions really awkwardly and then helping teach by the time I was like 10 or 11. My teacher was like, you got anything to add? And I was like, yeah, I do actually. <laughs> and that's just my autistic special interest coming through, even though I'm not a big fan of sex myself. <laughs> but it's even like, if we think about like, I like, I would love to see a research connecting the, the, the failure of our sex ed with like poor phobic and anti-sex work ideologies and reaction. So for example, if you're treated to treat, if you're taught to treat sex as this scary thing you can never talk about, that actually to me does contribute to harassment of sex workers in public space and the othering of sex workers in public space, because you were taught to think of sex in a very rigid, narrow way. That is like you, your buddy, like 17, con just one condom, um, a bedroom and no one ever talks about it. What does that mean that creates, that teaches people to have a conception of people who engage with sexuality in different ways badly, as if that's negative or harmful. So like bad sex ed creates like legitimate harm on ourselves and other people. Totally. Um, yeah, I related to what you said earlier, Faye, about um, how, I guess, of course, in Ontario, we teach abstinence only sex ed. Um, and it creates, it created for me a lot of shame and guilt for thinking about anything at all. <laughs> um, and in addition to that, I didn't have that education at all at home. And um, my parents coming from like a super conservative uh, culture and background, it was just super, everything was super shut off. And here's a little TMI. I don't know if I'll keep this in, who knows. Um, but I developed vaginismus uh, which basically is a condition that 
um, like basically your pelvic muscles um, are tense and don't like because they perceive anything going near them as a threat. Uh, it was a trauma response that occurred because I had so much shame and guilt towards masturbation and sex in general, or even just my, my body and my sexual organs in general. Um, and that was a lot to work through. And that was caused by the harm that these institutions, and I'm not going to blame my parents because that's, that's generational and that's cultural. Um, and I love them and I understand, I understand why, where that comes from. Um, but I live in a world where I want to be comfortable with myself and I don't want, I don't want to be scared of things that are completely normal. That's and my like, story. Like people have health issues, like, like, like both like sex and like shame spawns, but also like there is a fair chance at some point there's going to be something weird happening to your genitals. Like just, just generally speaking, like, and people are so scared of that concept that they don't talk to their doctor about it, which brings us back to, we don't talk, doctors aren't trained to talk about sex, sexuality, or gender. And like, it just, it compounds. And the sexuality piece, it just like the, the, the sex shame there even reinforces and further puts queer and trans folks at risk of bad healthcare and bad health. I think totally. that's so interesting and, because when I was reading people's experiences in healthcare related to sex, sexuality, and gender, and their microaggressions that they were stating, a lot of them had to do with this ignorance that doctors had, the lack of education, the lack of experience on their ends as well. And some of the examples that I want to share are, um, the first one is, if a patient discloses that they are a gay man, the very next question they hear is, do you know your HIV status? Instead of asking maybe a different question, it's automatically just that question. And then there's also the misconceptions and misinformations regarding transitioning um, and transitional med medications. So oftentimes doctors think that like taking tea causes X, Y, Z issues. So they're blaming transitioning for the issues that are completely unrelated and have never scientifically been proven and probably will never be proven because it's bullshit. Like it's not true. Um, and then also this is like antidepressants mm -hmm. have side effects. People still take their antidepressants. Exactly. Like stuff happens. Mm -hmm. Honestly, the one medication that I know for a fact has the worst side effects is the pill, the birth control pill, but women are forced to take it all the fucking time. Like, that's absolutely bullshit. Like, it's not fair. And if anything, men should be doing the whatever procedure that they need to do so people don't get pregnant. But it is what it is. And I think unless we have these conversations and actually talk to these doctors, these people who are training the doctors and fix this educational issue, it's going to continue, which is so unfortunate and so frustrating to deal with. Yeah. Um, there is a male birth control pill being developed and or hopefully will be available to the general public, which is very exciting. Um, and Rabia, going off of what like you said, I don't know one, like, I'm going to say AFAB person who hasn't been asked to go on birth control for any sort of reason. I complained of like acne birth control 
I complained of symptoms of depression, birth control, your hormones are out of whack. Um, all along, um, it was endometriosis, which is a hormonal part of like a hormonal thing, but putting me on birth control would have made that worse. I didn't go on birth control, luckily, but I want doctors to dig deeper into issues and not just, um, Sydney, like also put up something in our, in our research, uh, to do with doctors put into place a four minute rule where they want patients in and out of their office as soon as they possibly can, and don't actually get to the bottom of any problems within that time. I want to, okay. I want to interject just really quickly. So like what, what is supposed to happen is that like here in Ontario, the, um, like interdisciplinary clinics are set up so that you go and you see like a medical clerk and then you go and see a nurse and then you might see another medical assistant and they're supposed to like collect everything and then talk to the doctor but they're kind of like forgetting that people you're then forcing people to out themselves to like three different people to uh witness three different people's reactions I've heard so many people tell me it doesn't matter it does matter because you're assuming things about everybody that walks into this door and then you're providing only information based on that but yeah they assume that the doctor should be able to come in and kind of like debrief everything that they heard in these conversations in closed doors with other people in four to nine minutes and tell you like this is what it is this is the treatment sound good okay goodbye um but they don't they kind of leave a little bit of a buffer. So they're like, it's four to nine minutes, but four minutes is like the golden standard. And then nine is like, if they're being pushed back. Um, so like, if you get 15 minutes with your doctor, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm special. Um, and yeah, that shouldn't, I think what Nicole was about to get at, like it shouldn't be a thing for people who are already facing so many barriers just to get in the door that you're building such an inaccessible standard and that's why I love things like pharmacist-led and nurse-led like clinics because there's less like going through multiple people and also I find that they have the like nurses association of Ontario and the pharmacist association of Ontario both like provide really good ongoing training um especially with like HIV care and prep care prep is so important um and hormones, et cetera. And like, just really knowing that it's not always people coming in to tell you, like, I'm telling you this because it's a medical concern for me. Just going off of what you said, you do have the right as a patient in Ontario to one, ask for a second opinion. So if you don't believe what your doctor is saying, or you don't, well, not particularly you don't believe, but if you don't um, agree with your doctor or think there's something uh, more to the diagnosis or prognosis or advice that they're giving you, you have the right to ask for a second opinion. And you also do have the right to ask for alternative um, options for treatment. If they give you an option for treatment and you think it's too invasive or uh, not what you want, or you don't want to consent to that treatment, you have the right to ask for alternative treatments and other ways to go about, um, you know, either mitigating or treating or, you know, hopefully moving toward treatment in any sort of diagnosis that you may receive. Just something to keep in mind. Um, although these are the rules, they aren't up to standard. And you as a patient, 
unfortunately need to advocate for yourself in these cases um, because in the healthcare system, this is the way it's set up, unfortunately, and there are problems there. And there are many healthcare professionals who are also not happy with these standards and are fighting to obviously end them, but it starts from the bottom up in this case. I kind of want to add a tip to that list, actually. It's one that I found on TikTok, um, but this person said that um, when a doctor refused to um, give them a procedure or like a certain, or even consider a certain type of medication, they ask the doctor to make sure they put a note on their file. And that way, if they go to a second opinion, they can see what the other person thinks and their um, perspective on that. And that actually gets your doctor to think about what you're um, asking for. And also it shows them that you actually know what you're talking about, that you're going to advocate for yourself, which unfortunately shouldn't be the case, but it is. Um, And I really appreciate you sharing those tips, Nicole, because it's so hard to advocate for yourself, especially in the doctor's office. Also, like, I love to tell people, like, you can ask to bring a buddy. And that's never a bad idea. Like bring a buddy to the sexual health clinic, bring a buddy to see your family doc and take notes, write notes before about what you want to chat about. Uh, review them after. And if you have a question, like get the, the, the receptionist's email and see if you can like send something in. Like there are a lot, like self-advocacy doesn't have to be like, ah, doctor, how dare you? It can also be like, well, actually I would really like us to talk about this other action I'm on my list. And I also, I looked at that medication and I think, I don't think the side effects are right for me. What about option B? Like that, it's a negotiation as much as it is like getting treatment. It's a, it's a relationship, not you getting told like Medicaid, like healthcare is not go in slot A and go out slot B. It is a conversation. Yeah. And if you get anyone that does not treat you with that sort of relationship, then you should fire that doctor or physician or healthcare worker if you freaking can. I know it's hard, but um, yeah, definitely reach out and try and find someone new. Oh, someone new. I definitely fired somebody in the summer, though, for being um, queerphobic. So proud of you, Sydney. That's amazing. Um, Let's go. Um, I also, I want to extend a resource that has been useful to me. Um, So if I, for one, uh, being a new young adult who has just gotten, well, not just, but recently gotten rid of their pediatrician, because unfortunately, they were like, you're 22, leave my office, you're too old. I'm like, mm. um, so I don't have a family doctor and it's extremely hard to find one these days. Um, so if you don't have a primary care physician that keeps track of all your medical information, it's super hard to get treatment and it's so inaccessible. But if you are a person living in Ontario, resident of Ontario, uh, you do have access to the TELUS MyCare app, which has been very useful to me. Uh, they provide 15-minute appointments. Uh, they can provide referrals. They can treat some uh, some symptoms and some uh, some things, um, and prescribe uh, medications as well. Um, yeah, so I've I've been using it for a while, and appointments are 15 minutes long. So if you want to fill that slot, fill that slot. Um, and I've found that there are a lot of uh, I've had a few appointments and they've all been people of color, which has been surprising and great. And maybe that isn't, maybe I'm just lucky, Um, but it was a pleasant surprise to see. And these doctors have all been very kind and patient and have taken, and you also have access to your uh, appointment notes immediately after the appointment ends, which I have found amazing. You do have the right to access your, your appointment notes and all of your medical information all the time. 
also want to add that I worked with someone really cool, which is called the Prevention Clinic and Pharmacy. It's led by pharmacist Drew. You should look them up on like social media. They used to be called the Prep Clinic. Um, and they run, it's a pharmacist and nurse practitioner led clinic. It's all run online. They provide naloxone training and free discrete delivery of it. They provide STBBI swab testing that they'll send to you that you can do yourself. Um, tons of really, really cool stuff about them. And also almost all of their clients get PrEP and PEP for free because they have some amazing funding opportunities for that. That's so amazing. Um, you should definitely link them in the show notes, Sydney. That's an awesome resource. I've never heard of it. And yeah, I want to be a pharmacist and that's the type of pharmacist I want to be. So all queer pharmacists. We need like a good gay pharmacists. I just, just, just go. Yeah, please. <laughs> pharmacist Drew, everybody. Also pharmacist Jarvis, who just like came from Saskatchewan to U of T med. Super cool. Anyways, let's go on to our last question because we could probably go on forever about some people we love. Yeah. So um, our last question um, is what does building a better future for 2S LGBTQA plus youth in Ontario mean to you, Faye? Um, I saw that you recently tweeted, not stalking, uh, I saw that you recently tweeted something about wanting to see trans youth thriving instead of just surviving. And I also want to ask what that means to you and what you like, what that looks like to you. I love it. I think, um, I have like, I always have to like juggle my, my, my optimism and my cynicism and I never know which one to bring out in which conversation. So I'm going to try to do both. Um, on, on the optimism side, like I, I do really, I see like queer and trans young folks who are like making magic happen. Like they are thriving and I have a genuine hope that the future for our communities will be young folks coming out into safe homes, into safe families will be a world where we don't have to even think about the concept of coming out coming because out, everyone's just gonna be very gay and very gender weird. And there's gonna be so many different genders that no one knows what the like normal ones used to be. And it's a kind of thing that we just like forget and it's weird. Uh, and I think that would be really cool. Thriving to me is queer and trans kids uh, being housed in every and any context, having access to medical and, and mental health support if and when they need it. It is queers with jobs, but not needing or having to be in jobs that don't support them. It is queers uh, being happy, healthy, and celebrating. Um, I think there is, again, on the, on the optimistic side, I see a queer future where all of our conversations on gender and sexuality um, don't sound like they do today, where it's not um, a generation of, of queer kids who are having to unlearn like we do. My biggest hope is that the next gen of queer kids will not have to unpack all of the shit that every generation before has. Even my generation, like we, I grew up before trans rights were protected, right? Like I, I came out in a context right after. Um, but if I think back, like I didn't know trans people existed. I didn't know, I had ideas about queer people. I have a gay aunt, so I have to like plead guilty to the gay aunt. But I grew up, grew up and, and still all of, so many of us are spending our adulthoods unpacking the trauma of homophobic and transphobic childhoods. And I still see that in the current generation of queer and trans kids. And that is what breaks my heart, 
is the feeling that the future that we could have delivered those kids has not been made a reality yet. And that's the cynic in me. It is the fact that I think the next generation, the current generation of queer and trans young folks, yeah, they're doing better, but they're not doing good. And they could be doing good. This, the optimist in me says they've been resilient before. They've been resilient for decades. These kids are gonna be okay, but my heart goes out for the ones that might not be. And for the fact that our governments, our communities, we're still not there for those kids. And we're still not there for the kids who need us most. And so again, cynicism and optimism, that is my eternal battle, my eternal struggle. <laughs> but I do hope for the future and I believe it can be a good one. I think that was so beautiful. And I completely agree with your struggle because it is so, so common for me, especially. Um, and I just want to note the fact that even the smallest changes can have the biggest difference. And especially in healthcare, like the smallest things, like for example, seeing yourself in a poster on the wall while you're waiting to see your doctor and you see a queer couple or you see a racialized queer couple or a queer family, for example, like that representation matters. And seeing yourself, especially on that paper or in the doctor that you're seeing or the receptionist at the desk, like those small things make a huge difference because you know that those people will listen to you, they'll validate you, they'll care about what you're saying, and they'll validate the concerns that you have. So you don't have to always advocate for yourself. Um, I definitely think some other solutions that we can explore in the future is hopefully um, doctors being open for feedback, and even just not just doctors, sorry, um, nurses and nurse practitioners and receptionists, and everyone that you're going to interact with behind the scenes, being open for feedback on how they can improve. I think a lot of the cases, um, people just don't like hearing what they did wrong, or they don't like knowing that they hurt you. And that's so annoying, because you should be held accountable for what you're doing, how you're making someone feel. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you let, if you allow space for people to hold you accountable, for them to call you in. And I also think it's really important for doctors to just have that queer competency training and not even just doctors, like community service workers, or like they said earlier, anyone that you'll interact with that will be providing you a service that will help take care of you and create that better future that we're all hoping for. <laughs> And I think like one thing that I, I really want to highlight is that like, I think the future is one where we don't always have to be in fight mode. Um, Cause I think like we do that, like that is a thing the world makes us do, but also that we do because especially in a virtual world, like we are inundated. Like we are inundated with like what's happening in Texas, what's happening in Florida, with like hate and the stories and experiences of our friends. And I, I do actually think like that is a form of traumatization in and of itself. Cause like, Many of us, especially like the world is not a good place, but like a lot of queer and trans kids are actually doing okay. They are, we are not in the place that we used to be, but we feel because of those systems and because it's always around us and because we know it's never a guarantee, we're always in fight mode. And I want a world where I can be paid to be in fight mode so that the 16 year old kid doesn't have to be. So that we have the structures and institutions so that we, we know that people will come to bat for us. Because like, I get paid to fight. I, I really do, like my job is to be the loud, angry gay person and trans person who says, stop screwing with my kids. That is a role that I embrace. I love, I'm good at it. It's, it, is, it gives me passion. It is my source. And it is, it is a role that I step into full of rage and fury. 
but I want a world where every 16 year old doesn't have to grow and think that they are that too. Cause like kids deserve to just be kids. Like let the like let teens just make stupid decisions like I did and not have to worry about homophobia. Let teens be teens, get the homophobia out of it. I think that's beautifully said. Um, and I don't even know how we could top that off personally. I don't think I can. Um, but yeah, I think that anger, I guess going off of what you said, anger is a very useful tool, especially for those of us who um, have been going through the trauma or like I was raised, um, even though it was sex positive, there was still queer negative and trans negative uh, narratives being thrown at me from a very young age, not necessarily from my mother, but from others. Um, and yeah, definitely could improve upon all of that. And yeah, let's have the people who have the right to be angry and have been dealing with the shit for years yell about it so that the kids can have a peaceful childhood that they don't have to debrief in therapy or peer support groups for like eight years before they can actually process it. I, I, want, I want a world where I don't have to have a job anymore. Like, please God, like my, my work is queer and trans advocacy. Let's get me out of business. I would love that. I love that. So yeah, our slogan is burn this capitalistic shit show to the ground. So hopefully that is also included in you losing your job. But on a more serious note, hopefully, um, hopefully at that point, it means that queer and trans youth can exist. Well, not even only youth, but queer and trans people can exist um, without constantly being traumatized all the time. Um, and also, I just want to add that, um, yeah, in like the 19, 19, in the 1850s, um, Indigenous societies acknowledged multiple genders, um, but these Indigenous children were forced to identify as male or female in residential schools. So I would love to see some reconciliation on that part um, for the future of the youth. And I would love, love, love healthcare providers to stop gaslighting their patients, um, it, both in terms of um, not recognizing that their care needs to be trauma-informed um, in general, but also particular like Indigenous healthcare training. I would really like to see that because they're beginning to move towards that, but like it needs to be better. So that wraps up all the questions we had for you today, Faye. Thank you again for coming to the Three Chaotic Queers. We had a great time this evening. Um, so where can our guests find you and your work if they want to learn more uh, about what you do or W2A in general? Uh, yeah, so you can go to, I mean, I always like to hype up my own Twitter account and anyone who knows me knows that I'm obsessive about it, but at Faye Johnstone uh, or at Wisdom to Action, our handles across all platforms are just at Wisdom number two action, uh, but you're also pop in, uh, welcome to pop into my inbox at info at wisdom to action. Beautiful. Thank you again, Faye, for joining our chaotic conversations and sharing your experience, your knowledge, and your pride in this space. Your work is amazing, and we appreciate you so much. Hey, thank y'all for having me. I am honored to be here. Before we go, we want to leave you with a quote from trans author Vivek Shreya's best-selling book, I'm Afraid of the Moon.
When writing about her time as a gender and sexuality workshop facilitator, Vivek wrote that she had always been disturbed by the reality that often the only way to capture someone's attention and to encourage them to recognize their own internal biases and to work to alter them is to confront them with sensational stories of suffering. She then asks what many of us have wondered ourselves so many times. Why is my humanity only seen or cared about when I share the ways in which I have been victimized and violated? Just a thing for healthcare workers to think about. I think that's something everyone should think about, to be honest. And with that being said, we have a special announcement. We have launched an anonymous forum called Vent and Validate for listeners like you to send in their chaotic questions for us to answer and respond to. These questions can be about anything, from sexuality to gender identity to relationships and more. We are your big chaotic queer siblings here to share our experiences and grow with you. This forum can be found on LGBT Youthline's link tree and will close on March 25th at 11.59pm, so make sure you send in your questions before then. We're super excited to hear about all of your questions and respond to them. Make sure you tune in on April 1st to hear our next episode where we will be talking about decarceral care movements and resisting institutionalization with our featured guest, Destiny. Until next time, take it easy, queer kin and chaos lovers. This episode was brought to you by the Provincial Youth Ambassadors Program at LGBT Youthline. Creators and co-hosts are Nicole, Rabia, and Sydney. Audio technicians are Nicole and Umang. Graphic design lead is Rabia. Promotions team is Rabia, Sydney, and Sadia. The transcriber for this episode is Sydney. Production support and creative mentor is Kumari. Logistics coordinator is Katrina. And the free music sources from this episode come from the soundtrack Original Loops. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks time.